constancy is a word, okay? Uh, it basically, the, the basic definition of constancy is faithfulness, okay? Very, very appropriate when we're talking about prayer, very appropriate in our understanding of prayer because we have, and I'm going to say this, let me pray before I say any more. Father God, we ask tonight that you would humble our hearts, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom, that your spirit would lead us and guide us and teach us to, in the truth of your word, Lord. Help us to see our need to pray. Help us to see that prayer is an essential part of our lives as believers and help us to pray without ceasing. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Now I'm going to say this, and since there's little ears around, I'm going to very, I'm going to proportion my explanation appropriately. Okay. But we have butchered and molested the word prayer. We have butchered it to mean only what we want it to mean. And we have molested it to make it mean something that it is not. Okay? Now, I had other words that I wanted to use to explain that, but we had lots of little ears, so that's as far as I'm going with that explanation. But the reality is this. Prayer, so often, is understood to be some kind of superpower that we've, we've got that I can just employ my superpower at a moment's notice, and God has to bend to my will because I have this superpower called prayer. Now, I don't want, I know that nobody in this room thinks of prayer that way, okay? I only say this because there are schools of thought that teach prayer this way. But what prayer also is not, in that we have butchered it. Prayer is not a meaningless ritual that we go through because God has just planned everything out so there's no real need for anybody to pray. This simply is not taught in Scripture. This is simply not what prayer is. Amen? So we want to find biblical grounding in what we say about prayer. Amen. And we talked about last, uh, I think we talked about Wednesday night we talked about prayer, correct? Wednesday night when we talked about prayer, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. And we talked about how in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray had them focus on, first of all, Father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So prayer in Jesus' teaching is to gain God's will, to appropriate God's will in my life, in this earth, that his kingdom would be established, not Kevin's, not, not Agape Fellowship Churches, not, but God's kingdom. Amen. Amen? So we're appropriating God's will. What are we doing? We're doing that. Well, we're getting in line with God and what God wants. 
Now we get lost in this because if that was the only thing prayer was, then we could never pray for anything for our brothers, for ourselves. See what I mean? But all through the Bible, you know, we, we said something before before church, and I forget how I said it, but the reality is that we don't teach people not to pray for their loved ones to get saved. I mean, there's a school of thought that says, well, you know, God's already got that plan, so you don't have to even worry about it. No, we are to pray for them. We are to pray for them. Now, even if God has everything to put planned, we still have to pray for the sick, pray for those lost, pray for those who are hurting, pray, 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 pray. We are told to pray. We're told to pray for all kinds of things. Here's the thing. If the church didn't pray, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, while Peter was in jail, could God have got him out of jail? Sure. But the lesson wasn't. To just sit by and wait for God to deliver you. The lesson is you need to pray so that God will deliver people. Okay? Stop making something. On one hand, prayer is not some superpower that I can enact on, on, at a moment's notice and do whatever I want with. But also prayer is not some meaningless uh, bunch of gibberish that's pretty much just a ritual and it doesn't do anything. That's not true either. That's not biblical. All throughout the Bible, you see people praying and entreating to God. Some people, God answered their prayers. Some God, people, God said no. Some people, God did what he wanted to do. But they, it shouldn't stop me from trusting God and praying to God and saying, God, help me with this. Help brother so-and-so with this. Help sister so-and-so with that. I must have confidence that I can go to God with these things. And I believe we're running the risk of either side of this pendulum that we're falling in error in what prayer is. Because although God is sovereign and God has a plan, guess what? He chooses to use people. And how do you know? Because you don't have the mind of God that your prayer isn't exactly the thing that God's going to use to cause whatever he planned to come to pass. You don't know that it isn't. So stop acting like prayer is just a ritual. Amen? We gotta get it, we gotta get it together, okay? Because we got two sides of this pendulum that act like the other person is completely heretical. And then you got the truth. <laughs> Amen? That's generally. Right in the middle, in between these things, where prayer is absolutely necessary in the, in, in the, first of all, prayer is absolutely essential in the sanctification of a believer, okay? It's an absolute important part of us being sanctified, walking out the work of sanctification with God in our life, amen? How are you going to be, uh, go from glory to glory if you never take a step? Just going to sit there like baby Baptist on the front row, never growing, never changing, never doing anything. Right? That's what happens. People get stuck there. Or then you become, when you get out of that, you'll go to complete lunacy and think that prayer is something that you can use for anything at all the time. And it's at your whim and your will and it's for your purpose. 
Even though James said, hey, you have not because you ask not, so when you do ask, you're asking amiss to squander it on your own lust. Amen? So I wanted to go through a few things about what prayer is and maybe even a couple things where I've heard some verses quoted about prayer that I kind of want to tackle and I don't want you to beat me up. So save the stoning for after I'm done at least so I can get to the rest of them, okay? Because I've got a place I'm going here. First of all, Merriam-Webster, okay? Merriam-Webster, if you ain't never heard a preacher preach out of Merriam-Webster, you're about to. I love definitions, okay? I just love plain old regular everyday definitions. Get a Merriam-Webster's dictionary. I got a Merriam-Webster's collegiate dictionary. I moved up. Merriam-Webster was a believer. Did you know that? Bet you didn't know that. Merriam-Webster was a believer. You go look up some words in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and you will find incredible theological truths about faith, about regeneration, salvation, sanctification. All those, all these biblical words that we use, they're in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and he uses the theological terms to describe them. It's amazing. Never done that. Never looked up Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It's all kinds of good stuff in there. Merriam-Webster, this is the word prayer. Pray and prayer. Okay, I looked up both of them. Pray in Merriam-Webster's dictionary to entreat, to implore, to make a request in a humble manner, to address God or a God with adoration, confession, supplication, and thanksgiving. Amazing, right? Look at these theological words. Supplication. Okay, that's not a word you use in any other genre of speak except theology, okay? Confession. Thanksgiving. All these things we see throughout the New Testament sprinkled over and over how we're to be thankful, how we're to, to confess our sins to him because he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Gosh. He said, with, with all kinds of prayers and supplications, make your requests known to God. Remember that verse? Come on now. These are theological terms in this definition. Let's look at prayer, the word prayer. I just looked it up because it was right after prayer, okay? I'm not, wasn't deeply studying this. It was just the next word in the, on the page. An address as a petition to God or a God in word or words used in prayer. The act or practice of praying to God or a God. Now, I want to stop right there. First of all, it says an act or practice. You know what you have to have for practice? It means you got to do it more than once. Amen? You got to do it more than once. Practice means it's a routine. It's something that's part of my life. It is something that I have committed to do. Prayer isn't, prayer isn't like a spiritual gift. God doesn't just come down and say, here, here's a spiritual gift so you can pray. 
Prayer is one of those gifts that I got to stir up in myself. Like Paul, we talked about this morning, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 to stir up the gift of God inside of him, right? Prayer is the same thing. I got to stir that gift up. I have to make a conscious, determined, committed effort to pray. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't accidental. You never just start walking down the road and go, oops, I started praying. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I'm going to say it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dad, they love me, okay? I, I'm terrible. I say that all the time. Prayer's not, you don't do prayer accidentally. It's not like you're walking down the road and stub your toe and all of a sudden, boom, prayers pops out of your mouth. Prayer is a determined action. Prayer is a premeditated, purposeful action that a believer takes to have communion with God. Amen? There's two ways that every believer can know for sure that they are having an encounter with God. Reading His Word and praying. Okay? If you're not doing those two things, get up and get to praying and get to read your Bible. Amen? You want to know God? That's the two ways. The easiest two ways ever. Okay? Ever. Every believer ought to be doing these things. Amen? Uh, go to Acts chapter 2 real quick. I want to read Acts chapter 2 before I forget. Acts chapter 2 says this. And I believe it's verse... Let's start at verse 20, uh, 37 so we can have some context, okay? Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And he, uh, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now watch this. The most important parts right here in verse 42, 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers and to the prayers. Notice what they devoted themselves to, the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Matter of fact, well, you can go to Acts chapter, is it 6, where they get the, uh, the where deacons are first mentioned, and they, they, the apostles get so busy preaching the word, and, to, and, and then, then they're still ministering the food to the widows. They said, look, we're way too busy to minister this food to the widows. We need you to pick seven men from among you who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we need you to have them do these things. So we can devote ourselves to what? The preaching of the word and the prayer. Are you seeing the necessity of prayer? The, the apostles 
thought prayer was so important that they couldn't be bothered with other things other than reading the word and praying. Okay, that should be your pastor's job all the time. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and praying. That's what your pastor ought to be doing all the time. Amen? If he catches a football game in between, that's okay. But he needs to be praying and reading the word. Amen? It is, it is that vital. Every Christian should be doing this and notice that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And it says, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Well, we, I asked this morning, I said, wouldn't it be lovely to have a church filled with people who wanted nothing more after church than to just stick around and, and fellowship and eat dinner with their family at church. That's fellowship. Amen? Paul loved Timothy. Paul, Paul's love for Timothy comes out in First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I remember your tears. And he said, I long to see you that my joy may be full. This is Paul writing to his son in the faith. A church should love each other. A church should want to spend time together. Which is why I think we're lacking in fellowship. Strong's Dictionary has this definition or these definitions of the word pray or prayer. To ask to implore, to beg, to intercede, to petition, to supplicate, to call, to request, to seek, to ask. And all of these words can be found throughout the Old and New Testament. What was Jesus' own words? He said, seek and you'll find. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened. And it's just coincidental that he starts talking about prayer right after that, right? No, it's not coincidental. He meant it that way. He wanted you to understand prayer. Matthew 6 and 6, he teaches how to pray. He said, would you, don't be like the hypocrites. Go to church and bang your chest and let everybody hear you pray. And don't think for your, all your many words that you're going to be heard of God. But go to your closet. When you pray, pray in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. So is Jesus saying we're never to pray in public ever? No. He's trying to teach you that you need an intimate, at-home, alone, personal prayer time. Like he had. Jesus was recorded at least six times that I know of where he separated himself from everyone and went off alone to pray. In the night, at, in, the, in the morning time, all, all different days of time, he was going off to pray by himself. Mount of Transfiguration. He took three disciples to go up the mountain to pray. Garden of Gethsemane, greatest, darkest hour. Took those same three disciples, went into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. Came back and said, why can't you stay awake? 
Stay awake for one hour. Come on, man. I need your help praying. Right? Over and over. <clears throat> Prayer isn't something that we should take lightly. Prayer is not something that we should just think, eh, I really don't do anything. Really ain't anything to that prayer thing, so why should I do it? We need to get over that attitude. The reality is, the church is probably in the position it's in right now because prayer stopped. The church is probably failing and falling apart and falling short because we've stopped praying. We think we know it all. We think we got God all figured out. We think we got this Jesus thing all hammered down. And we think, oh, since I got it all hammered down, I got it all figured out, I don't need to go ask God anything. I know what I'm doing. And then the wheels fall off our theological carts. We find ourselves in the valley, in the shadow of death. And all of a sudden, we don't even know how to pray. Because it's been so long since we did. I had somebody ask me about a family member one time uh, here very recently talking about why God allows family members to get sick and die and these things like that. You know, it's really hard to believe God, uh, hold your faith in God when this stuff's happening. I said, if you waited until you're in the valley, if you waited until you're in trouble, in the storm, to choose to try to believe in God, that works. I mean, you can call out to God in the midst of the storm, but I believe God would much rather you have your faith established before you ever get to that storm that you're going to trust God no matter what no matter what comes no matter what's going to happen I'm going to trust God but if you wait till you're in the middle of the storm it's hard to pull that faith or build that faith when the winds are howling and the rain's beating down on you and the troubles of this life are crashing in on you I'm not trying to give you no hope. There is hope. Call out to Christ. But let that experience teach you that I need to believe God all the time. I need to understand that I can go to God and build my faith up all the time. How do I build my faith up? Exercise it. How do I exercise faith? Pray. Read the word. Faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do I build up my faith? I pray. What did he tell Timothy? He said, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Know what he said? So, I acquire faith by the word, and I build faith in prayer. Man, come on. That's, that's big time stuff right there. I get faith from the word and I build faith in prayer. That's how I get it. Okay? You know, why is my faith so weak? Because you ain't building it up. You're not praying. You're not putting it into practice. You're not stirring up that gift. You're not using it. Amen? Come on. And this ain't, uh, uh, I'm not practicing you. You know, all the money and all, I'm just telling you that your faith is going to increase when you're praying. Okay? It's not going to increase by osmosis. You can read all the word you want. 
You get faith by the word. You build faith in prayer. Let's look at a few verses that I want to pick apart just a bit, okay? Don't shoot me. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now this verse has been quoted, especially over the last year, year and a half, over and over and over and over, okay? And we've used it somewhat rightly so to call people to repentance. I, I have no problem calling people to repentance. We're going to read this verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay. Context matters, right? Context matters. Now, does God want people to humble themselves, pray and seek his face, turn from their wicked ways? Sure, sure he does, okay? But what I'm saying is this verse here is not a promise for you. There's all kinds of other promises in the New Testament that apply to us as Christians and pray. This verse, in the context that it was said, let's read the whole thing. Solomon, if you know this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 17, or in, in the last chapter of chapter 6, Solomon had prayed after he sanctified the temple to the Lord God, and Solomon prayed this great long prayer about how he wanted God to hear the prayers that were made in that place, that if anybody had sinned and they come and pray and bring offering in this place, that God would heal them and deliver them and forgive them, even if they were strangers and, and uh, foreigners, even if foreigners came into this place. That was Solomon's prayer, okay? What you have here, starting at verse 11, is God's response to Solomon dedicating the temple of the Lord, okay? Verse 11 says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said unto him, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for my, for uh, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up, notice what he says. When I shut up, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Notice who's. Sending the locusts and the pestilence. This is, a, this is a message that you could not preach in many modern churches because they have this idea that God just would not do that to me. He said, but if I send this pestilence and these things, he said, if my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayers that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then will I establish your rule, your royal throne as I coveted with, your, with David your father, saying you shall not lack a ruler on Israel. But, watch this, but, if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the land I have given to you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. I will make as a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which, uh, all, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster upon them. Now, first of all, I just want to tell you that that was talking about the temple. Okay. He said, my eyes will be here and I'll hear the prayers there if Solomon's faithful. Well, we all know that Solomon wasn't faithful. We know that Solomon not only forsook God and followed after other gods, he built temples to all the different wives that he had as gods. Did he repent later in life? Sure, it sounded like he did. Sounded like he understood the error of what he did. But this verse is not a prophecy for you, okay? It could be a warning. It could be an exhortation for this is how my heart should be coming to God. I should understand my wickedness. I should understand my sin. And when I do, I should humble myself and seek God's face. Turn from my wicked ways. Can I apply it that way? Yes, you can. But it is not some philosophical prophecy for today. The way it has been quoted over the last year and a half, it's, it goes like this, okay? We'll be talking about the last days. We'll be talking about people repenting and turning to God. And they'll say, oh, you know, the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. That's a promise. Well, it is a promise. But that actual verse isn't the promise, okay? The promise is Christ. Amen. We need to understand this is talking about Old Testament types and shadows, first of all, okay? This is Old Testament understanding of going to God and bringing sacrifice, amen? And there's only one high priest. There's only one way that I can come boldly before the throne of grace. And it's not by my sacrifice, but by Christ's sacrifice. Amen. Because now we have a great high priest who is touched with our infirmities, who knows 
our temptation and our struggle. Amen? Like I said, I'm not trying to tear this verse apart for you. Can we apply it with the understanding that, yes, I need to turn to God, seek Him, seek His face, turn from my wicked ways? Definitely. But let's use a real, true, biblical understanding of turning to Christ. Because this prophecy has nothing to do with the last days. This word has zero, zero to do with the last days. Okay? I just wanted to throw that out there. And then there's one more I'm going to tear up just a smidge. Okay? And then I'll get on to all the good ones and you can put your stones down. Okay? Jeremiah 29 Jeremiah 29 We'll start <laughs> This is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles The exiles of who? Israel while they're exiled where? Babylon, right? This is Jeremiah's letter to Israel as they're in Babylon. They're in captivity, right? We've got a very famous portion here that all of us know. Uh, and I'll read just the parts we know, starting at verse 11. For I know... The plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now this is very, 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 very familiar ground, right? We all know verse 11, for I know my plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to discredit this. God does have a plan for you, for you, for you, for you, for everybody, right? He does. Okay? But when we're rightly dividing the word, we need to understand that this prophecy is not directly for me. And this prophecy, like the prophecy of Chronicles, is not a prophecy for the end times. This prophecy was to the exiles in Babylon. And he brought them back. Amen? This prophecy was fulfilled before Jesus ever even came on the scene in flesh. Amen? Where were they living when Jesus was here? In Jerusalem. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem. So he could not have been talking about the last days with this verse. Okay? Why am I bringing this up? Because a lot of people are using these verses for last days, end times stuff, okay? And they have application that we do need to turn from our wicked ways and turn to God. That's true. But that, first of all, the one in, the one in Chronicles isn't even a prophecy, okay? 
It's just God telling Solomon, look, I'll do this if you do that. Amen? So, in, in, in terms of thinking of it as prophecy, it's not an actual prophecy. Now, this one here is a prophecy, but it's, it's prophesied to a specific people. And if you just take one step and go to verse 10, verse 10 will explain this to you. For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, boom. You know what? When the 70 years was over, they came out of captivity. We've got that later on in Scripture, that after 70 years, they came out of captivity, and I believe it was Nahum or Nehemiah, one of them guys, rebuilt a little temple in Jerusalem and worshiped began in Jerusalem again, okay? Now, why did I bring all that up? Because every time we talk about prayer, these verses are brought up as some kind of prophecy for the last days, okay? These verses are not last day prophecy. Do they have practical application for Christian living? Yes, I can apply these verses that way. Yes, I can know that God has plans for me and that his plans for me are good plans, Plans to do good for me and prosper me. Amen. I can. I can apply that that way. I can. Then I can call upon God. And he'll answer me. When we call upon God, does he hear us? Yes. Amen. So I'm not destroying them. I'm putting them in perspective. Amen. Now what I do want to do is go over some verses that have absolute benefit for me and you. In understanding constancy in praying. Amen? Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to get some really good nuggets in here. And you're probably going to go, I know all these verses, Pastor. Good. Read them over and over and over. And then pray. Then pray about it. Then pray, then pray that verse. Amen. Philippians 4, chapter uh, 4, verse 6. Very familiar passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, how can I directly apply this understanding? Okay, let's directly, uh, and I kind of want to go and read just a little before this too. Verse 4, he starts out by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. And then he tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you go, well, pastor, I don't feel like the peace of God is guarding my heart and my mind. Maybe it's because you're not constant in prayer. Maybe it's because you're not doing what it says before that. 
Notice that verse 7 says, and, and, and. You see that word and? Is and in the King James? Verse 7. And. Anytime you see and, that means whatever came before the and is absolutely crucial, right? So when I read this and have the understanding, do not be anxious about anything. First of all, before I pray, I have to go, am I anxious? Am I worried? Do I need to get rid of this worry and my anxiety over this situation? Well, how am I going to do that? Watch this. But, don't be anxious, but. So how do I get rid of anxiousness or anxiety? By what he's about to say, after the but. Amen? Watch this. But. <laughs> I lost my place. But in everything, tap the neighbor on the shoulder and say everything. Everything by prayer and supplication. What's the difference between prayer and supplication? Well, prayer is just a simple, I'm asking. Supplication is, I'm begging, I'm pleading with God. That's supplication. Okay? Supplication is the act of begging and supplicating to God. And then he says this, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. Amen? Watch this. So how do I get the peace of God that will guard my heart and my mind? By prayer. By praying. By supplicating. By thanking God and making my request known to God. That's how I get what's promised in verse 7. Notice that, that what happens in verse 7 is not going to come by any other means except for what was spoken in verse 6. Are you seeing that? So we've got a lot of anxious Christians because a lot of anxious Christians haven't been praying or supplicating or making their requests known to God. Therefore, the peace of God is not guarding their hearts or their minds. Amen? How do I get that peace? By prayer. Well, I'm at peace with God when I come to salvation. That's a totally different subject. Peace with God through, through salvation is not peace of God in my mind while I'm going through difficult circumstances. I still have to pray. I still have to what, why does Paul tell us to work out our own salvation? We're already saved, right? What's he talking about? Then he's talking about my sanctification, me walking out this new life in Christ. God doesn't do that part for you. You have to be intimately involved in your walking out this life of Christ. Watch this. <laughs> Go with me, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You know, everybody thinks 1 Thessalonians just got a bunch of stuff in there about the, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem or the end times or eschatology or whatever you want to call it. Go to chapter 5, verse 17. Very important part of scripture. We don't need to forget this one, okay? Pray without ceasing. One of the shortest Bible verses ever. Pray without ceasing. Let's see what he said before it. 
Rejoice always. Woo, there's another short verse, right? Verse 18, right after. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Are you seeing all this? He's given the Thessalonian church an idea of how to, to handle themselves, how to conduct themselves as they're waiting for what he talked about in the, all the other part of 1 Thessalonians. Okay? He does talk about eschatology. He does talk about the destruction of the temple. He does talk about all these things. But he's still telling them, until all this happens, you're still going to have to live out this life of Christ. So how am I going to do it? By praying without ceasing. Hebrews chapter 4. God's favorite copy. Ha, 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 ha. Hebrews, nobody got it. My worst dad joke ever, I know. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive grace and uh, receive mercy and find grace in, to help in our time of need. What is he talking about? Let us then. When he says let us then, he's talking about a subject he already talked about. What's he talking about? Jesus being our great high priest. Since Jesus is our great high priest and he went into the heavenly places and made sacrifice once for all, then we can boldly come before the throne of grace and present, go to God and entreat God. Amen. Ask God, beg God, plead with God, pray to God, make our requests known to God. Amen. That's what he's saying. He's saying right here, since we have this guy, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what does this have to do with constancy in prayer, Pastor? This ought to help you. This ought to re alleviate any thought that you have that this is foolishness and God doesn't need me to come and pray this stuff and ask these things. Because he already knows what I have need of. Jesus already said he knows what I already have need of. Why do I even need to take it to God? Jesus didn't tell him not to pray. As a matter of fact, he taught him to pray, okay? Taught him to pray rightly. Pray in faith. Pray believing. Pray because you know God loves you and God has answers for you, amen? Might not always be yes. Might not always be the way you want it to be. But you can always come boldly before the throne of grace because we have this high priest. Amen? Go, to me, uh, go with me to Ephesians 6, 18. And you guys know this one. This is the armor of God. We talked about, we, we went over the armor of God over and over and over and over. And this one here, after we put on all the armor of God, and if you don't realize it, I'm just giving you a background. Every piece of the armor of God is Christ. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. I don't save myself. God saves me. It's 100% free gift of God. Not as works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is free. I'm going to guard my mind with that thought that I have to do anything to earn God's favor because God already done everything that's necessary for me to be saved. Second of all, righteousness. I'm not righteous on my own. 
I could never be righteous enough to make it to heaven. So because I was a sinner, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for me that I might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? You see in how Jesus is all the pieces of the armor of God? The belt of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the word of God, and he prayed in John 17, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your, uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is truth. When you're putting the belt of truth on, you're putting him on. Peace. Preparation of the gospel of peace. Having my feet shod with the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? The gospel is this. I was an enemy of God, but now I have peace with God through Christ. Faith. Get the shield of faith. What's the shield of faith? My faith is in Christ and in what he did for me. If it's anywhere else, my shield is worthless. I will never extinguish any fiery dart on my own without faith in Christ. How does that shield of faith quench every fiery dart of the wicked one? Because he's the accuser of the brethren. And when you put that shield out there, he doesn't see your works. He sees the work of Christ. sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh that dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Understand this armor is Christ. Verse 17, he said, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what? Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What's the armor of God for? It's for you to understand that you can pray. It's so that you understand the armor is there so you can go to God with all these needs. Pray at all times with all kinds of prayer. Do you see this? The words are not when you feel like it, every once in a while, here and there. Every time it's all, all, all. I'm going to close with one more verse. I have a few more, but I think I've made my point abundantly clear with just these verses. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I got to writing all these verses. I said, Lord, I ain't never going to get through all these. There ain't no way. Luke 18 and 1, and it says this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. I like how the King James says it. It says that Jesus told them a parable to this end, that men ought to always pray and not faint. That word faint sounds a lot more dramatic, doesn't it? 
There's a reason they use that word. It doesn't lose heart just doesn't sound the same, you know. Lose heart just doesn't have the same effect as faint. That word faint, the word lose heart means to yield. Men ought to always pray and not yield. Why? Because we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who persevere and are saved. Amen? Our job is to pray. When am I supposed to pray? All the time. What am I supposed to pray about? Everything. Okay? Everything. There's nothing that's off the table. Don't, don't let anybody fool you with their, with their real deep hermeneutics and theological philosophies. Prayer is not that difficult. You go to God, you ask God, and God does the rest. That's prayer. Amen? Our job is to pray. It's God's job to do. I don't, I don't answer the prayers. I don't look. I don't go out and try to make prayers happen. I just pray. And when I feel faint, I pray some more. And when I feel anxious, I pray some more. And when I feel like it's all lost, I'm going to pray some more. And when I feel like everything's going down, I'm going to pray some more. I didn't even get to Peter in prison where the church prayed without ceasing until he was released. They were so heavy in the prayer, Jesus, that, that Peter come and knocked on the door. And they thought it was a spirit. They slammed the door in his face. They had to knock again. They opened the door and let him in. That's how devoted to prayer these people are. Yet we have the idea somehow that we're more spiritual than they were. Somehow that nobody will ever say this out loud. But they think, oh, that's for those people back then. They didn't have anything better to do. No, they had lives just like me and you. They had kids to feed, jobs to go to. But they were devoted. That's what we need. We need constancy in prayer if we're going to see change in our community. Why? Because God isn't going to work this all by osmosis. Why would he teach us to pray? Why would he tell us to pray all the time? and not use the prayers of his saints to do anything. Does that make any sense at all? To put his saints at work to prayer all the time for those prayers to never come to pass? Makes no sense. That absolutely, if you're trying to talk about God being sovereign, would, would constitute God not being all anything because God being all everything in control of everything when he teaches us to pray must have a plan and a purpose for those prayers otherwise he's not omniscient he's not all knowing doesn't have a plan but if you believe he's all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, and in control, then you've got to understand when he told us to pray and told us that we need to pray all the time, then he must have a plan for our prayers. Amen? Stand with me. I know I'm about to put everybody to sleep. Love, <laughs> love y'all. I wanted to get that out there, though. We need that. We need to learn how to pray with consistency. 
Amen. With constancy. Where we're doing it all the time. So I want to just. Tonight I'm going to pray. And we're going to close. And if you feel like staying and praying. You can stay and pray for a few. It's alright with me. But I might just go over here and pray for a minute myself. Because the reality is. We can't just be doers. Or can't be just hearers of the word. We need to be doers. Amen. Doers of the word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and praise you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, for your sovereign will that's at work in your church, God, and how that you taught us to pray, that you commissioned us to pray, Lord, that the church in the house of God is supposed to be called a house of prayer. God, let your people understand their need to pray. Help us, Lord, to understand our need to be consistent and constant in prayer, God, that we need to not be of those who, who shrink back, but we need to be those who persevere, persevere in doing the work of the gospel, persevere in reading the word, persevere in prayer, persevere in, in the fellowship of the saints, persevere in the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we need to persevere in the face of all these different things that are coming against Bible-believing Christian, Christ-following believers, God. Help us to be consistent. Help us to be faithful, constants in prayer, God. Help us to have constancy in prayer that we can follow you and be faithful to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.